and welcome to Dialogue and Debate with Cumberland Lodge. Dialogue and Debate is our regular series of webinars where we respond to key themes emerging from our conferences and other activities, as well as other pressing issues arising in society. My name's Emily Gow and I'm the Programme Officer at Cumberland Lodge. Last time on Dialogue and Debate, we were delighted to welcome the Mayor of Greater Manchester, uh, Andy Burnham, and the Co-Director of Cornish Studies at the University of Exeter, Dr Joni Willett, to discuss the themes and recommendations in our latest Cumberland Lodge report on resilient communities from different regional perspectives. In case you missed it, you can watch the discussion on the Read, Watch, Listen page of our website. In today's webinar, we'll be exploring the complex politics behind language and terminology, and we'll discuss the importance of the use of language in the workplace, the media, and within our communities uh, to ensure that everyone feels included, valued, and listened to. I'm delighted to have with me four guest panelists. Uh, welcome to you all. We've got Kiri Kankawende, who is a freelance journalist and trustee at Index on Censorship. Uh, Tony Thorne, author, linguist, and lexicographer. Dr. Melanie Schroeter, who is an associate professor at the University of Reading. And Andy Shaw, uh, who is the co-founder of Comedy Unleashed. So welcome to you all and thank you for being with us today. And um, before we get started, we'd love to invite you and um, our audience to, to submit your questions throughout the webinar. To do so, you can use the question and answer function if you're watching live on Zoom, or by commenting on our Facebook live stream. We'll also be live tweeting as we go, so it'd be great to hear your views and questions, and you can do so by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge using the hashtag dialogue debate. So I'm going to hand over to our panellists, and I'm going to start with you, Melanie. Um, Melanie, how has the importance or attention to politically correct and acceptable language changed in recent years? Hello, and <clears throat> thank you very much for uh, having me here. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's a great opportunity uh, to discuss uh, these things, and also because political correctness always gets discussed in a certain way quite negatively, even though we tend to kind of um, ascribe political correctness to a lot of things. But what I think it is really influenced by a lot is <clears throat> recent ways in uh, recent changes in the ways in which we look at language. And I think it is probably quite useful to lay some of these out at the beginning to sort of be able to refer back to uh, in the discussion, or I hope it uh, may be useful. So um, one thing is that we consider language not as an exchange of information between people, but also as a way of doing things. So then it becomes important to look at what intentions people have when they say things. And in the context of political correctness, whether people, if they use certain language, and they get accused of um, sort of using that language in order to discriminate. You can have these debates about whether or not that was actually their intention. And often you get apologies like, oh, I wasn't aware, you know, that this was the wrong word. And um, another thing uh, also is that we recognize more and more that language is also a way of being, that it links to our identity so that the way we speak, uh, you know, tells others something about ourselves, perhaps also something involuntarily, sort of that they then ascribe to us, that frames a certain way in which they look at us. 
but also the way we are being talked about, the way we are being represented can conflict with our own notions of how we are or who we are. Uh, and there we get in relation to political correctness, we get the debates here about um, self-defining so that minority groups, for example, get an uh, opportunity to um, influence the debate about how they are being referred to and maybe suggest how they would like to be referred to. And then uh, we can see language as a social construct as well. And this is something that interferes with a lot of speakers' understanding of language who think that the meaning of words is rather fixed. You can look it up in a dictionary, right? So it's got to be, as it says, in the dictionary. Or you look up its etymology, so it's got to be what it meant originally. And that understanding of language is changing as well. We know that words change as we keep using them and as maybe different groups start using them. And we can see changes like that in the reappropriation of originally discriminating terms such as queer used to be a negative uh, term and has been sort of reappropriated as, as a positive identity marker. Um, so, uh, so, that, so the meaning of words is a lot more in fluctuation than people like to realize. And that is also part of the insecurity in the, um, uh, with regard to political correctness. How can we stay on top of this? How can we make sure we are using words that are appropriate if we don't want to cause offense to anyone or make anyone feel uncomfortable? And then uh, last uh, point to mention here perhaps is that we are also more likely to notice the relationship between language and power. So what chances do different groups have to access the public sphere to make their voices heard and to participate and pursue their intentions uh, in the public domain? Um, so p the political correctness debate can also turn into a debate about um, or into a battle over the power, who has the power to draw or redraw the lines of what is acceptable in, uh, in public discourse. So on the one hand, you have the people who um, would like to have the use of hate speech avoided, but in the eyes of others, that means like establishing some kind of censorship. And then you have the notion that you need to protect the freedom of expression. Uh, but then for others, that means that if, if you apply this without any restrictions, then that also means tolerating symbolic discrimination. So I think these are some of the things that are on the currents of why we are having this debate about political correctness for 30 years now. And, um, and they um, sort of come up in, uh, in instances uh, where political correctness is being invoked. Yeah, thanks so much, Melanie. Um, that's great. I'm going to come to you, Tony, because I know you work quite a lot with young people. Um, and I'm wondering um, whether, going back to what Melanie was saying about identity, how uh, young people, how the language uh, amongst young people is changing, uh, and perhaps how technology is changing the way in which they communicate and the, the sort of language that they're exposed to as well. Well, young people, 
Young people are interesting because, as I think everybody appreciates now, they're part, uh, they're a very important part of language change. They seem to be the source of a lot of um, newly generated language or language which appears, which, which has to appear to be new and novel for its power, for its resonance. Um, and of course, the, one of the most familiar forms of this new language is slang. And young people are the originators very often, but not always, but those who, who, who share and trade slang, this sort of exotic language. And slang is, is a, an integral part of young people's experience as they develop, as they become more experienced, and as they cultivate their, their social personas and their identities. Um, this language, we, we all tend to take language very much for granted, but it is such an intimate, integral part of all our identities. And young people um, are in a position where they're experimenting and exploring, able to be creative. And, and this is why they do invent and trade and exchange new forms of language. And I always, there's a, there are a lot of things that I, I always say, maybe they're familiar, maybe they're obvious, but first of all, novel language, for example, slang, there is nothing defective or deficient about it. You can disapprove of it socially um, because it's used to be rude or it's used to talk about sex or drugs. You can disapprove of it because using slang won't help you to get a job or, or, um, or write an essay. But in its context, and all language is context-specific, and that's how we should judge it if we do judge it, slang is actually a very appropriate kind of language for young people to use in the context they're operating in. And also, and, and again, I don't know if everybody knows this, I've been trying to tell people for a very, very long time that slang as a variety of language, as a form of language, is very similar. This is not fanciful. It's, it operates in a very similar way to poetry and literature because it uses things like, it uses the same rhetoric, rhetorical tricks, the same playing with the technical structure of language that poetry does and that literature does. So it's far from being a defective language. We really shouldn't disapprove of it. Although it's only appropriate in certain contexts. And if it moves, and this is why teachers, law enforcers, uh, broadcasters, um, and other uh, authority figures get upset, because if slang um, leaves its context, of a, its appropriate context, and it's used in the wrong, the wrong time, the wrong place, for the wrong people, of course, it's jarring, it's disturbing, it's discomforting. And I think, to, to again, to answer your question in a different way, if you look at how young people are actually using language at the moment, and you mentioned technology, um, most young people, nearly all of them now, have what you could call, if it, again, it doesn't sound fanciful, they have, they have a social persona, they have, they have their own personality and identity and their own uh, what we call uh, speech community or community of practice. That's their peer group, their friends, their network. But they also have a virtual persona very often. They have an online persona. And they're, they're not just reacting and, and interacting with their friends in the school or the street or at home. 
They're interacting with celebrities, influencers, YouTubers, people online. And they, I think many of them, I mean, it, I also should say, it's, it may seem absurd that somebody like me, an old white male, a baby boomer, is taught, trying to talk knowledgeably about youth language. And I don't pretend that I'm part of those communities. And I don't pretend that I'm down with the kids. And I would advise any teachers or parents never to, never to go there. Don't try and use the language. Don't try. And, but my only claim to be able to talk about this, I'm an outsider. I'm not part of the in-groups who use this language. But I've been studying it. I've been collecting it and recording it for more than 30 years. So um, again, I can't claim it's terribly difficult to keep up with. It's terribly difficult to get access to some of the milieu, some of the platforms on which young people operate. But, but I have to try and do that because I'm compiling dictionaries. I'm, I'm compiling glossaries of new language. And also, I have to work with this language. And there are two other things I'd say just to get us started. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm being long-winded here. The, the two, there are two distinct ways, I think, that I see that young people are actually using language in the UK now. So the kind of language they create, the kind of language they like and that they use. One is very much tied to celebrity culture, online culture, fan or stan culture, and things like gaming and fashion. And the language they use for that, they usually use online. Of course, they exchange it, they talk it as well, but it's, it's very much an online language. And a lot of that, interestingly, very much of it comes from the United States still. So influences young people in the UK. And this is the kind of overexcited language of, um, of drag queens, of fashion designers, of music stars. Um, of hip hop, of pop, um, that words like slay or queen or king, or there's some very funny words like wig. When they shout wig, it means it actually is a drag queen expression, meaning I'm so excited my wig flew off. But a lot of young people just say wig and they mean I'm amazed and excited. Um, and then the other kind of language they use, the language they use on the street, in the playground, in conversation, is very much a different kind of language, which is native to the UK. And it's what's sometimes called MLE, multi-ethnic London English, which is a terrible term because it's not, it is multi-ethnic, but it certainly isn't restricted to London. But this is the kind of street slang which is very much based on black British English, on African Caribbean origins with some working class white admixtures and some Asian and now some Polish. So that's another youth dialect. So I hope I haven't confused you because youth language isn't one thing. It's a very complex network of different sub varieties. Yeah, thanks, Tony. So, so obviously, young people are getting so much exposure to different types of languages. Um, I was wondering, Kerry, whether you, whether you have an opinion on this, and, and whether you think that actually that means that for young people it's harder to know what is politically correct because they're hearing all these different types of languages in, in different places within their lives. 
Um, it's funny. I think the obsession, with, not obsession, but I think the preoccupation of being politically correct is something that's something for older generations, I think. Mm, I think young people are a lot more, they, well, at least the ones I know, they just say what they mean. They mean what they say. But what I think is a bit bewildering sometimes is to watch that generational split, for instance, phrases like woke, which started, for instance, in the black community and, you know, as something about being, you know, alive to your history, alive to, I guess, the forces in the world and that sort of thing have now become a, something that's taking up a lot of column inches um, and a lot of outraged columns um, about wokeism, and, which is a weird thing because wokeism is not a thing. Um, so, no, I don't really think that um, young people struggle with it as such, um, but I do think some of what they say just goes completely over the heads of those that are older and some of the outrage... Um, I think is sometimes a bit premature because they, they understand each other perfectly. And actually they understand each other across borders um, internationally as well. There's also an international aspect to it, um, partly because I think the American cultural hegemony does spread that far. And Tony's quite right. There's a strong American influence in it. But I think another strand that comes through is that the black influence um, from the black diasporas is also very, very prominent. And you get this language that is understood across different black communities in different countries. Um, and I think sometimes that's missed in the mainstream conversation. Could I, could I, I don't want to monopolize, but could I also agree and, and add that this is a great generalization and I'm not probably expert enough to say it, but in the language of young people that I've studied, um, I, I've noticed something in terms of the sort of the, the tendencies, which I think is really interesting. I also collect the language of adults, and I've been studying recently the language of Brexit and populism, and what I call toxic terminology, the language, hate, hate language and language of division in politics and the media. And um, young people don't do that. There's a great generalization. They don't, there are some, there are some extremist young, young communities like the manosphere, um, meninists and incels, but there, there are not very many of them, I think. But the young people's language that I've studied, you could characterize it that what they're doing, um, first of all, in their online personas, they're anti-exclusionary. They're progressive very often. They're very into, for example, they've been very accepting of, of Black Lives Matter. Um, they're very accepting and interested in cancel culture. I'm talking about Generation Z, the sort of teenage and very young adult um, cohort. Um, but they're interested in things like accountability they're interested, they, they demand that people express empathy. Um, they, they're very interested in apology culture and the fact that apologies should be genuine and authentic. Um, so I say that young people not only have a different kind of language that they use, but they seem to me to use it for different things. And this is a great generalization, but I haven't seen that kind of toxic, very much of that toxic politically based um, uh, divisive language, uh, certainly, of course, some young people inevitably use it, but it isn't a feature of youth language, in my experience. 
Thanks, Tony. I'm, I'm conscious to bring Andy into the conversation. Um, so, Andy, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about Comedy Unleashed um, to start with, but also share your views on how language in popular culture, such as TV, programmes, um, literature and, and comedy, of course, um, as well. And, and do you think maybe people are oversensitive when it comes to language? Yeah, I think hugely oversensitive, which is why we set the club up. Um, I, I think people are... Um, it's interesting, Melanie said um, right at the beginning that, that what you say says something about you. And I think that... I think, uh, And it's true, of course, how we communicate, how we express ourselves, you know, all these things do say something about you. But I think we become hyper alert to problems and, and people are, are worried about the way that they're perceived and also about the way that they're misjudged and quite often maliciously mislabeled. So it's quite a, it, it, so the, the reason we set the club up is we said to people, well, let's just stop being frightened because actually most people are all right. And the only people who should judge a comedian isn't, um, uh, you know, a, a booker uh, or a, in a real case, um, you, you know, with the, the sort of hate crime legislation, you know, there's, there's lots and lots of people being um, visited by the police and on all the rest of it. So it, there, is a, there is a climate where um, people are, can be quite worried that they, you know, something that they say will affect their entire career and, and, and will be a label that will, will stick with them. So we said, look, for the audience and also for the comedians, let's create not a safe space, but a permissive environment where people can say what they want. And the, and the judge of whether they're any good or not is whether the audience laughs. And if they don't laugh, you're no good. And if they do laugh, you're a good comedian. So, so that's why we set the club up. Um, and, uh, 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 and, and we tried to attract as many people from lots and lots of different perspectives and backgrounds and, you know, genuine diversity of opinion and put lots of different people on at the night and also try and encourage a lot of younger comedians to come through and try things out and experiment. So the club is quite often experimental. We put a lot on the YouTube site, but there's a lot we don't because they just want to test it out in front of the crowds. You need to be there to see it. Um, and some comedians who go on, like Jeff Norcott, for example, who goes on the Mash Report, quite often test stuff out of the club beforehand and says, that's not going to go there. They're not going to allow that one. That one's just for you. So th there's quite a lot of that goes on. Um, but the um, and it's great. And we until COVID happened, we, we didn't even need to advertise. We were selling out 300 nights on a wet Tuesday evening and, and we were booked sort of six months in advance. We were about to launch a national tour and then COVID happened. But the other thing we did is we thought, well, as a principle is we'll book anyone who is banned. So irrespective of why they were banned or how they were taken down or it was a Twitter mob or whatever, we'll put them on. So, so we had a, had a sort of, you know, a real print, a sort of a, a sort of free speech type principle and say, right, you need to be judged in front of the audience, you're not judged in, you know, in the, in the public. So, so we had, um, uh, we mentioned, uh, Tony mentioned about wig and drag queens. We had Vanity Von Glow who did a free speech thing. And there were some right wing people who uh, were, were also on the, on the, uh, speaking on the stage earlier. And she was totally taken down in the, in the LGBT community in London. So we said, well, you know, come and do the show. Even though, you know, she's not a comedian, she's a drag queen. She's actually very, very funny as well. So we've had lots of, lots of that, uh, that as well. I think there's just one more thing I, I, I'd just like to mention. Um, apart from, you know, I can talk about words and language and what have you. But I think, I think there's a real danger that um, uh, we, we, we're, everything is taken so seriously. 
And what people say is, is often taken as their intent and what they think and what they believe. And we, we have a real danger that, that we are losing the ability to genuinely understand what satire is. The satire is, you know, quite often where you will, um, uh, you know, create a character that plays out in a certain way or says things or tests taboos or tests sort of controversial opinions. And, you know, saying something that you don't believe is a bit of a rhetorical device. Um, but it also allows you to uh, play with the complexity and nuance of everyday life and to bring out things that we might think or things that are half conscious and play with them in the public sphere. And, and the ability to do that is hugely important for the creative arts. And it actually is what allows us to be human and human with each other and, and not to be afraid of, of exploring these things so that we can, we, we can work it all out. There's a, there's a great quote, which I'm gonna to have to read out from Christopher Hitchens, which says that the, the struggle for a free intelligence has always been a struggle between the ironic and the literal mind. And I think that's a fantastic, that's a fantastic quote. So the, the more restrictive, the more people that are worried about the consequences of getting something wrong uh, or being misinterpreted or saying something that, that, that is seen as an expression of their, their innermost beliefs, the more we have that environment, the less creative people can be. Mm -hmm. you, you can only write material and, and play with ideas in your mind. If, if you can go where your art takes you, if you're constantly thinking, how will the most malevolent person interpret what I'm saying? Or will an activist who's got a political agenda try and attack me for this and take me down in the public sphere? You destroy creativity and you, and you create utter blandness and corporate nonsense, which, to be honest, is what passes for a lot of, a lot of comedy that the comedy industry promotes. So... Um, so I, I think we need to just free things up. Stop being frightened. Uh, stop trusting. Start trusting each other more. Try and see the best in other people. Uh, and and th then I think we can see a revival of, of uh, creativity rather than the sort of closing of the mind, which is the, is the, is the direction of travel at the moment. Thanks, Andy. That, that, that brings us really nicely to our audience poll, actually. We're going to bring the audience in um, and ask a question. So for those watching on Zoom, um, a poll will appear in the middle of your screen now. Um, and the question we're asking is, do you ever feel concerned or anxious about choosing the right terminology or language with which to talk about politics or society? Uh, so, Andy, that, that links in really well to what you've just been saying. Um, so let's see what, what our viewers think. So 50%, oh, it's changing. <laughs> okay, uh, so 50% say sometimes, 42% are anxious or concerned, and 8% say no. Um, so Melanie, I was aware you were just about to say something. Oh. Would you like to, to, to share your views on those results? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's... Uh, it, it's um... We, we have become more sensitive to language and then sometimes the debates that result from that go a bit into overdrive. And I agree that we can't, um, we can't go around with that most malevolent, malevolent, 
uh, never mind, you know what I want to say, uh, with the most sort of uh, um, negative interpretation of what we're saying in mind. Um, so we can't like avoid offense all the time. That would be a tough call. But sometimes even perhaps we want to provoke and cause offense. So that is something to keep in mind. That is part of the social world too. But it has also been part of the social world all the time to try and navigate difficult situations, taboos, insecurities in who we're dealing with and how best to deal with them. So we're being careful about that euphemisms aren't a new thing at all in the world. So um, so I think that, um, that this would really be a tough call to avoid offense all the time. And then on on one side, it can be upsetting for being criticized for using language that is made out to reveal attitudes that you don't think you have. Um, so that surely can be quite uh, disturbing. Um, and uh, on, on the other side, so much depends on context and situations keep fluctuating. So you feel a bit insecure about what is the right thing in, in what situation. But usually, I think you can still assume if you gen genuinely did not mean to discriminate, uh, if you genuinely had no intention to cause offense, then how likely is it that you're getting into situations like these? Um, but also, I think coming back to the point about youth, um, uh, perhaps not worrying so much about this anymore because um, if we replace one word that has become negative through its context of use with another word without the discourse changing then it is likely to become negative again the new word is likely to become sort of get that negative connotations again and then we kind of have to keep replacing in a spiral of euphemisms and that makes people uneasy because they think am i on top of this what is the right word now i may be using the wrong word and the thing becomes a bit less complicated if using language in a certain way is reflective of progress being made so if we have a genuine change of attitudes, if the discourses around certain things or groups change, um, then, uh, then the words can stay in place, as it were, because they don't become negative one after another. And they don't need constant replacing and, and revision. But most of all, I think um, this is a healthy debate. It's, it's a healthy debate to have. We do discuss language. All of us think about language, think about words in, in so many different ways, not only about PC, but we do that. And, um, and we correct each other, um, you know, and, and, and we ask for, for a word that we don't know and things like that. So, so that's a very common thing to occur. And I think like criticizing somebody's language for its implications is a good exercise in perhaps thinking about um, what you do when you use language and what the implications might be or what experiences go into that being understood in a certain way by others. I think that 
the PC debate is very much framed in terms of this is prescriptive. They want you to choose this word and not that word. And it is, it is not a very healthy framing for what could otherwise be quite a productive debate about the relationship between language or certain expressions and the social world. Um, so I hope that helps a bit in, in light of the results because we have these insecurities and we think there is a right or wrong. But in a way, all of this is part of navigating through the social world with language. And it would be so much nicer if it was understood that this is up for debate and that it's a good thing to have a debate and that a debate doesn't mean instant consensus. And so we can go on awareness raising, perhaps of the implications of certain language use, um, but also uh, uh, come out of this frame of these are the rules, this word or that word, and if you use this word, you're a racist or some um, racist. Mm. Kiri, what's, what's your take on this? So obviously, you're, you're a journalist and you talk a lot about issues of race and identity, and I think that's a particularly sensitive issue. Um, uh, and I'm wondering um, how, you, how you navigate that, um, how you make sure that language you use is uh, clear and, and sensitive and, and, and you're not offending people. Um, I know there's been some controversy around the term BAME, um, and, and how, how do you, how do you uh, deal with those, um, those, those questions? Well, I think BAME is an interesting one because it was originally just a measuring, a term for measuring, um, which I think kind of stretched beyond its usage. And so, um, which I think links to what I want to say next, um, because I think when you look at BAME, for instance, a lot of people don't really understand what it means. Like the A, is it Black, Asian, minority ethnic, Black and minority ethnic? So I don't know if it's as useful as perhaps it once was. And I think the main thing is to continue the conversation with the people who are part of that category to see what they want to be called. And that is a long, laborious process and we do still need to measure. But um, I think, you know, ethnic minorities is a good kind of holding stopgap in the meantime. Um, the other thing is that, um, you know, BAME doesn't really, there's white ethnic minorities as well that get obscured sometimes with that phrase, like the traveler, Romani, gypsy communities. Um, but in terms of it being sensitive, it's funny because I wouldn't say that these language terms are sensitive. I mean, a lot of it is just asking people what they want, you know, what works for them, what they want to be called, what, because yes, language does shift. And I think sometimes framing it as this sensitive live rail issue, it builds up this, I think it makes these conversations a lot more fraught than they need to be and a lot more loaded than they need to be. Um, we know that language keeps changing over time. It's just something that I think we need to take in our stride. Um, and I would always sort of question, you know, sensitive for whom? <laughs> um, certainly as a black woman, um, when I'm in doubt, I just ask, um, especially, I mean, we've got one thing we haven't touched on, I think is a lot of the language around gender and that sort of thing and sexuality. Um, and I think that's another area where people feel like they just don't know what to say. Um, and I noticed that one of the questions that come up is about, you know, um, how disabled 
communities can keep can keep pace. But I would say that within disabled communities, there are people who are talking about how they want to be referred to, whether it's sign language or whatever. People are the conversation is live. I think we just need to tap into it. Um, and I, I really do sympathize with what Melanie's saying in terms of not making it so um, not having such strict frames. Let's explore this. But I will say that where you explore, it does matter. Um, I think there's a reason I was quite intrigued by what Andy said about, you know, sometimes they don't put the clips up on YouTube from the comedy. And I think, obviously, I know that when people are practicing in the comedy club, that's also where you want to practice your jokes and not have everyone leak it before it's live, but also because the context matters. When it's a disembodied thing on another platform, you're not in the night. You don't know how the mood was. You don't know how the crowd was. You don't know how that landed. You don't know who was in the crowd. Um, so I do think that online is not necessarily the best place to have some of these conversations. Um, because I think that things get dehooked from their context and then it just becomes a spiraling conversation. And a lot of what, especially is written, reads very flat. So someone might say something that comes across as incredibly harsh because of a full stop <laughs> at the end of it, for instance. Um, obviously there's a difference between abusive language, that's a separate category altogether. But I just don't think sometimes that Twitter with the 280 characters is enough to really draw out the nuances of these discussions. Now, where we have these discussions is something I'm still not sure of, but I think that um, initiatives like Comedy Unleashed are incredibly important just for allowing that experimental space where you play, where you just go out there and just be creative. I think it's, we need more of those sorts of spaces um, and it's risky, but I think that sometimes, you know, you might have a, a Twitter mob or whatever, a lot of, a, a vocal minority who are upset, but sometimes institutions overreact. And I think sometimes when the police get involved, especially their instinct will always be, well, let's just make it as, you know, let's try and re reduce the amount of controversy possible. But why not just have something go ahead and then people can also protest? You know, as long as it stays within, you know, the legal bounds, that's also counter speech. That's also free speech. That's also important. Um, but I think sometimes institutions don't back um, artists and performers and they don't stand by the people that they commissioned. And I think that's a real shame because it just reduces the amount of spaces where we have to explore these things, even if it's uncomfortable, especially if it's uncomfortable, because that's really important. I can see Andy, you're, you're wanting to, to chip in here. So yeah, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'd like Comedy Unleashed not to exist because I'd like society to be a permissive space. Um, I, I, you know, I, Kiri, I totally agree. I, I think the, the, the problem isn't, you know, a small group of loud activists. There's always been that in society and there should be because there should be and there will be extremists and there will be people who are, you know, I've, I've just been reading about the English Civil War, <laughs> the Puritans. And it's, you know, it's, it's that will always happen. I think the, the problem we have is, is we've got a sense of, 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 of our institutions are utterly rudderless. So they are led by people who don't actually know what they're doing anymore and don't know what their purpose is. And, and forget that, you know, if you're a CEO of a company, your job is to make products, pay your investors, pay your employees and make the company successful, not go on some social justice campaign. If you run the BBC, your responsibility is to try and reflect the cultural wealth of this country and bring it and, and represent us as a nation. If you, you know, I could go through all the institutions, they are all right now rudderless. 
And the problem is, is as soon as you get, as soon as you get a small group of activists, um, you know, who are trying to, you know, pursue their agenda or take people down or do whatever they're trying to do, but no one's got any spine anymore. So no one just says, bugger off, you know, this is good, this is what we do, you know, and ignore them. That example where the, that, that um, uh, episode from Faulty Towers was taken down because of the um, uh, racist uh, old major, I don't know if people uh, remember this, um, but, the, you know, John Cleese wrote his uh, piece to say that he's an old fossil who doesn't, who will get everything wrong and he's an old bigot. And he gave, came out with all these racial expletives and, and the joke was on him. But the BBC didn't say, look, it, the joke's on this guy. And by the way, you know, this, you know, people should be able to go and judge this for themselves. They just, they just, they just took it down. It might be back up now, but that happens all the time. So the, the, there's, there's no sense of, of knowing what they're for and just standing by their people and having some guts. I think just, just one other comment, because I'd be interested in what other people think, um, uh, is Kiri was talking about the term Bane. And Tony's you know, looking at language that emerges spontaneously within certain social groups. I think one thing that's very interesting is, is a lot of the language that's being adopted is, is, is not coming up. It's top down from management consultants, HR people, lobbyists, uh, you know, and, and as Kiri said, BAME is a measurement about basically ticking people off of, of their levels of diversity within an organization. So they, you know, hit some targets or whatever. But it's now entered the national, you know, the news. They talk about BAME all the time. You know, and it's what do people want to be called? Well, we're all individuals and lumping, you know, you know, lumping, you know, local guy runs the Chinese takeaway together with, you know, uh, a 17-year-old um, black lad in Tottenham. You know, their life experience, they have nothing in common with each other, and yet they're all BAME. Mm. So, so we've got so much of this language which is created by consultants and, and lobbyists. You know, cisgender. A friend of mine is a nurse, went to a course run by the NHS, her employer, uh, about trans, and started calling all the women in the audience cisgender. And she stood up and said, I'm a woman. I don't even know what cisgender means. <laughs> you know? So people are, language is being imposed on people rather than where, and Tony's much more expert than I'm sure other people around the table are, that it used to spontaneously come up and have real meaning because it was a new way of describing our experience or communicating with each other. And then it would be adopted in society. So much is just happening top down and being imposed on people. And I think that's why people are sort of kicking against it. And quite often the kicking against it is interpreted as, oh, you know, they're bigoted or they're, you know, they're very old fashioned. You know, it's not. They're just people just feel resentful that they're being forced into categories that they refuse to accept. You know, I will never describe myself as a, so I'm about to do it now, as a white middle aged man. It's like, that's not how I identify. It's like, I'm an individual that runs a comedy club and does this stuff. It's, you know, BAME is, is patronising to people who are shunted in that. In that. My, my son's autistic. He's not part of a disabled community. It has absolutely no meaning. Um, so, and, yet, and yet all the discourse is forced down on people. And I, and I think it only it creates confusion. It doesn't help us communicate with each other. It doesn't help explain mm. anything. And, it fit, and people resent it because they're starting to feel pushed out of their own society. They're mm. forced to talk to each other and understand each other in a way that, that, that is an imposition that makes absolutely no sense and forces them into a certain, into a certain corner. 
And I think the more that that happens, the more resentment uh, will will be created, and it should be the other way around. Sorry, I think, yeah, I I think partly this is also um, a sort of um, a symptom of the absence of some real communication that we ought to have had before we start discussing certain labels. And I think that also refers back to what Kiri is, uh, was saying, you know, just talk to people, ask them, check, check them out, you know, where, how they, you know, how they would like to, uh, you know, appear in, in your talk. So this, this BAME is certainly like an institutional context, it's top down, it lumps people together. What we don't have in these institutions, like in workplaces, for example, is actually uh, an opportunities, creating opportunities. So we've got these statistics now where people tick their BAME or other boxes. But uh, what we don't have very much is a forum to engage with one another and to have perhaps what is comes under the BAME label um, engage with people who don't uh, about um, their experiences and, and get people to understand what they are, what certain perspectives are, where, where perhaps uh, um, offense might start um, and how everyone is different as well in terms of what causes offense or what they would like to, um, you know, uh, be, be referred to. So, I think words-based regimes as well and institutional regimes uh, will always sort of trigger entrenched views no? on, um, on, on what, um, what, what goes and what doesn't go. Um, but, uh, but certainly these genuine, more genuine conversations are um, missing here. So if any word regime was sort of based on having had that conversation to begin with, I think we'd all rather buy into that. And that's a similar mechanism to a, a, a non-offensive word will naturally hold its ground once people's, when that comes on top of attitudes having changed previously. When a word is propped into a problematic field where the attitudes aren't changing, then the word will have to change all the time because it will become negatively loaded. So, um, so you really need a bit more sort of bottom-up understanding, a bit more genuine understanding, I guess, for um, for perhaps not having so much problems any so many problems anymore with the surface of the language. But I think this I think there's a very crude, if you like, practical problem. And I, I've been actually in the last few days talking to people about this. And that is, where do you go? Ask. We live in what what sociologists and, and anthropologists call super diversity. We live in, in urban mainly societies with an incredibly complex mix of identities and ethnicities and regionalities and the rest of it. Um, the, 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 um, where does somebody, if you, if you imagine somebody who's relatively, who's a non-specialist, who's not, it doesn't have an agenda, but for some reason they are called upon to, to, to use language of ethnicity. They, they're looking for labels. Labels is, in itself is a bad word. You can see that it's a, 
it's a difficult concept um, and labeling is a, is a pejorative term but sometimes we have to talk about ethnicity and I've, I've been as I say, I've been talking to people, people who are activists, people who are, are journalists, people who are academics, over the last few days about this. Um, and the problem is, there are no, in a, in a society like ours of super diversity, there are no authorities, or rather there are multiple authorities. So if you want to know what to say, how to say it, or what you can say, where on earth do you go? And this is a really difficult problem, just in that simple technical sense of where do you go and you've been saying and i absolutely agree we need to have debates about this we need to have debates in the right forums we need to ask people who may be um maybe the victims of discrimination what they want that's crucial but how do you do all this now one way uh, one of the one of the what shelley called the poet unacknowledged legislators, the unknown authorities, are lexicographers. One of the places people go is to the dictionary, and I quite understand that, I'm glad they do, but even us lexicographers uh, who are trying to keep up constantly, diligently, with the way language is changing the terminology, it, we find it very difficult to keep up. And we talked about BAME, about this expression, and the same debate is going on right now in the United States. With, they don't use BAME. The, the, the most favored designation at the moment is BIPOC, uh, Black, Indigenous, and Persons of Color. Um, and even that is controversial because the Indigenous, uh, some of, them don't, some of them call themselves Native Americans or First Nations. Which, which, label, which label is acceptable? Even among them, it's difficult because of disagreement. But they said, no, we don't like BIPOC. We'd like it to be IPOC because we, the Native Americans, were here first. So, you know, let's, let's have another acronym or another abbreviation. Um, the problem is that they don't use BAME because Asian in the United States means something else. And even Asian is a problematical term. Does it mean South Asian, as it often means in conversation in the UK? Or does it mean South Asian and Southeast and East Asian? And does it matter? And should we be lumping people together in these categories anyway? But what I'm saying is we do have to talk about ethnicity. And it's very difficult to find any definite authoritative source. And I've looked where you can go, where, where an ordinary person can go and find out what is being said now, what you can say, what you can't. The government can't tell us. Um, the police can't tell us. There are, you, what I would advise anyone who wants to do is to go online. There are articles and glossaries um, usually produced by activists about terminology. But the problem is they don't all agree. And we've been arguing also about, about BAME, and I haven't yet. Uh, I, I hope someone will, will, will send me some, some updates. I haven't yet found a substitute term which seems to be generally acceptable. And think about it. What, if, you, if you abandon BAME, what are you going to say if you have to say it? The other one is urban. Urban may seem a very innocent term, but it's not. It's, it's a conflicted, complex term. It can be, especially in the United States, a code word for black. Um, and it's usually used in a pejorative sense, which makes it 
potentially toxic. In the UK, I'm not sure, I don't know. Um, we haven't done a poll, we haven't done a survey, but we've, we're having the same argument now as to whether you should use, talk about urban music. Um, urban British English is one of the labels that people, some linguists use for the language of young people. But does urban, does urban, is it a disguised term of black? So all I'm saying, I'm not, I'm not perhaps being helpful, but the terminology is so complex that experts are not quite sure in many cases what, what to say or what can be said, let alone the reactions of the people who are being described, who are very different. Um, black is, a, is another case in point. Some people don't, don't like to use it. Uh, many people in the UK do use it who, who are um, African Caribbean, um, but even even that even that word, that universal word, is still complex and contentious and conflicted. And try as we might, even lexicographers uh, can't always be authoritative. We can only try to describe what's what's being said and trying to keep up to date. And that's difficult because it's this. This debate is going on right now, and terminology is changing right now as, as we're talking. I agree. I think that, um, and I think it's a good conversation to have, and I also don't have any answer to the, I guess, the big collective noun. But what I would say is that, especially as someone who writes a lot, that um, I think what people find perhaps most frustrating is when the collective noun is used when you mean a specific group. And I would just really encourage people, if you mean black, just say black. If you mean Chinese, say Chinese. That sometimes a bit of what Melanie said about trying to use euphemisms, I think sometimes just cause more confusion. So I'd rather than say Asian, if you mean Chinese, say Chinese or, you know, um, be specific where you can, because I think it's, it's, I think what people find probably most frustrating is when the collective is used when you mean a specific. Um, but I, unfortunately, I don't have an answer either, but I'm glad the conversation is happening and I'm quite confident that in this new century, maybe we can find more language. But I think the most important thing is that we just keep batting it around and that ultimately nothing is going to please everyone all the time, but we might arrive at some sort of general consensus. Um, although I, I hear what you're saying about the lack of an authority. Um, but I think that especially if you explain the decision you've taken, for instance, I've watched as different newspapers decide on different things like the Washington Post, I think it was decided they're going to capitalize black and capitalize white, for instance, they've given a reason why that, that you can look up as to why they've made that editorial decision. And that's going to be different to other publications, but at least you can see their reasoning, whether you agree or disagree with why they've taken that decision. Um, so I think transparency um, and trying to just be as precise as possible is probably the most helpful thing in the interim. Thanks, Kiri. And um, I'm just conscious we've had a, a question in from our online audience, so I'll open it up to whoever wants to take it. Um, the question is, uh, people seem to have different opinions on free speech and the consequences and boundaries. Whose responsibility is it to explore this topic with children and young people so they understand the richness of free speech and its consequences? Well, Andy. Well, I, yeah, I, I think um, it's, it's funny. Free, um, free speech is, is, is in the last couple of years become a tainted concept. 
the, the sort of assumption that sits behind it is that if you want, if you allow people to be totally free, they'll say awful things because people are horrible. <laughs> it seems to be the, the assumption, which I think is pretty awful. So I think we should take it the other way around and encourage people to be as expressive as they can and, and, and work things out for themselves. And kids will work things out for themselves. Christ, you know, the, the, the amount, um, you know, people of a certain age, but... Um, uh, you know, we worked everything out for ourselves. Our parents didn't teach us a great deal. Um, and, uh, you know, we used to turn up for lessons and do the biology, but everything that happened in the playground was, you know, there's no adult, you know, you, you work it out. So I, I think as a, as a parent or as a teacher is we just try and encourage people to be as expressive as they can and as honest as they can and just, and, and, and just work it out amongst themselves. I think the limits on free speech are purely the legal limits of incitement. And that's it. And that's the only rule. All the other hate speech legislation, the, you know, Section 127 of the 2003 Communications Act, uh, all the, you know, policing Twitter and all that stuff just has to stop. And, and we have to let people sort of let, let people work it out. And I think the more, you know, the best answer to a bigger is to argue with them uh, and undermine their arguments and, and all that sort of thing. And, and I think we need to give kids the confidence to think for themselves deal with difficult situations, be able to articulate what they want and negotiate because life is full of conflict and negotiation. And the more we can arm people with a self-reliance and the ability and the language to do that, the better society we'll have and the more robust individuals we'll have. If we try and take that authority and impose that authority from above, whether it's the police or the teachers or what have you, you are disempowering people to run their own lives and, and basically emasculating society. And you will always need an external authority to police it, whether it's language language or conflict resolution or what have you and again the whole direction of travel is in the wrong way in my view we, we, we you know we teach people trust people and, and genuinely empower them to, to 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 express themselves and find the language and then i think society itself will evolve i'm aware we've only got a couple of minutes left but i've just got a question actually um perhaps melanie might be able to answer this one um, but are other languages within other languages are we having these same sorts of debates and 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 what's what's going on with for example languages with sort of gendered grammar someone mentioned earlier um and that how how are those changes happening yeah very much so i mean i can speak for german mostly uh, which is what i sort of investigate very often so um yes we we have um, um P pc debates big time i think uh, it's it's more pervasive in german society in some respects especially when it comes to dealing with the past and also right-wing orientated political orientations are, are, are really sort of um, bringing this to the uh, to debate again and again and again how they are being silenced and, and not able to talk about certain topics anymore. So that is one thing. But the other thing about gender is um, it, the uh, gendered language is not so much a problem only when it comes to referring to persons and um, and various arguments are made against various solutions new perhaps sometimes radical perhaps also unrealistic but provocative um, suggestions are being made but i think there are some things that work quite nicely so in public document you often public documents you often have the, like the pair form so you get the male and the female form named together but people find that obviously unwieldy for spoken language but what we also um, can do is we can uh, nominate we can make nouns out of 
participles. Um, so we can use uh, like um, so. Uh, we we would have a male and a female form for student, for example, student and studentin. But then we can say someone who is studying. So that is a participle, studierende, and um, and and you can turn that into a noun, and then it becomes gender neutral. So we are doing that with a lot of things, and it is. It is a more impersonalized way to um, sort of it. It used to be a marker of a more impersonal style, and people have been criticizing that. But it seems to work equally conveniently as as using they and them instead of he slash uh, she in in English. So so things are changing. That is also something that. Um, has been held against PC at the beginning. It is ridiculous to operate at the level of language. It's ineffectual. Um, it is a surface thing. You know, it won't do anything. But actually, we do see that these increased sensitivities around language, this increased reflection, and the increased meta-linguistic debates that we have, so debates about language, are actually... Of um, putting, causing change, um, but it only really works most of the time when you have something that is sort of consensual enough um, and convenient enough, uh, and that is pretty much that explains a lot about any aspect of language, consensuality and convenience. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll um, stop talking now. Uh, can um, I just say that there has very been, quickly, this, Tony? Yeah. Sorry, this debate has taken place in in France and Spain as well. And the joke is, they have an academy in France who can tell you what you can and can't say, but it's incredibly conservative, inflexible, and regressive. So it's a waste of time. Can I make the mm -hmm. last plea to everybody watching? Can we just stop saying PC? Could we abandon, abolish the word? And it, use words like compassionate language, empathetic language, or something like that. Get rid of that. It, it's a toxic term. It's a weaponized word. Let's get rid of it and get rid of snowflake, get rid of woke. Don't say those words. Can I make that clear, please? I, I shouldn't say this as, a, as an impartial, objective lexicographer, but I hate those words. Thanks, Tony. That, that's actually a really good way to end. So um, I'm afraid that, that brings us to the end of the webinar, but I'd just like to say thank you so much um, to our four panellists uh, for being involved with dialogue and debate uh, today. Um, and thanks also to our audience um, who've been watching this morning. Um, if you'd like to get alerts about forthcoming webinars, you can sign up uh, to the Keep in Touch page on our website uh, or email us at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. And our webinars take place at 11 a.m. on the first Wednesday of every month. Um, just before I say goodbye, I'd like to highlight that, um, all, like all charities, Cumberland Lodge is facing difficult times during this pandemic. And if you've enjoyed today's event and would like to support our work, we'd be so grateful uh, if you could make a small donation and you can do so online uh, via our Just Giving page and we'll put the link up uh, immediately after this webinar. Uh, so thanks again to everyone um, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.